Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Welcome to episode 79 of The Storytellers with Lisa Rosenberg and Embers on the Wind. Lisa is an author, she's a psychotherapist specializing in developmental trauma and racial identity. She's also a former ballet dancer. Her debut novel, which came out in August, Embers on the Wind, is breathtaking. It is about a 19 some odd year Airbnb that used to be the place for the Underground Railroad. It's beautifully written. It's a compelling novel. And I am so excited to welcome Lisa Rosenberg to the Storyteller's Microphone. Hi, Grace. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Lisa, I'm as you know, I'm reading your book. I find it so compelling. I love the way you handle dual timeline and the very, very different lives of women on a continuum of years and years and generations and generations. So tell us about Embers on the Wind. Okay, so Embers on the Wind, you know, the main character is really a house. It's the story of a of a 21st century Airbnb that was a former stop on the Underground Railroad where um, where freedom seeking formerly enslaved African Americans would hide in the root cellar on the property on on their way to Canada. Um, and the the home was owned by abolitionists who were you know what you what's known as conductors or helpers along the way um and this novel is set uh most of it's set in the 21st or 20th century and it's the story of modern day black women who are for one reason for one reason or another drawn back to this house um a big section of it is set in 1850 when the um when the original freedom seekers stopped in this house and for a few different reasons perished on the grounds their spirits now haunt the house and they interact with the uh modern women who who arrive there um so it's really a, a series of interlinked stories featuring this house and women who are either uh you, you know come to the home have a seance trying to find answers about their ancestors or they are vacationing there uh, a, a, you know a, a young woman and her husband get away from their park slope life and um and busy medical practices to have a nice memorial day vacation there and interacting with ghosts who um make them see themselves in a different kind of way leads the vacation not to go the way one would want to um but you know i'm trying to think of if i have if if there is a particular um you know it's about hold on i'm looking for my ah, oh well it's it's about the notion of freedom and what this house represented back in the day was a stopping place and hope and if you'd made it to massachusetts which was a free state but because of the fugitive slave act 
if you were caught and there were paddy rollers, patrollers, slave slave catchers in the area in the 18, even in the 1850s, when the two young women hide there, they would have been taken straight back. So this is their moment of they're yeah. almost there. They're almost there. Because if you're in Massachusetts, you're in a free state, but you're not in Canada. So you can still get sent back. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. One of them actually makes it to Canada and then turns around and, and comes back, which is actually what Harriet Tubman did. She made it to Canada and then turned around and came back and helped. Um, so let's yeah. talk about the inspiration for this. Sure. This is a very real house that you know mm -hmm. personally. Absolutely. So this house is based on my father, on my father-in-law and stepmother-in-law's summer home in the Berkshires. It was a beautiful former farmhouse, um, and it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Um, in the center of the property was a root cellar, and that's where escaped um, escaped formerly enslaved African Americans hid on their way to Canada. The legend is that a woman freedom seeker came into the house, was brought into the house for some reason and died there. And the legend was also that her spirit haunted the house. And um, I used to think about her all the time because as you know, my, my husband, my husband is white as is his family. I'm not though my mother is, and she came to visit us there too. But I thought of, myself and wondered whether or not I was the first African-American woman that this spirit, this this spirit yeah. who was a freedom-seeking, formerly enslaved person had met. And what would she think of me? So I used to go downstairs. I'm a night owl. So I used to creep down the stairs to the part of the house. And in my book, Whitaker House has a big, fancy, renovated section with a sub-zero, you know, appliances and all that and and um and a section of the house with the birthing room and the library and the old floorboards that creak and make the same sounds that they've been making for 225 years the house was really like that there was the renovated section and then there was the old we would call it the old part of the house and it did have a birthing room and ancient wood and and um you know wrought iron fixtures and things like that and i would walk into that part and i would sit in the library and, you know, be there for her to find, you know, and, and call to her if I could. But of course, I never met, I never met the spirit. I never saw any signs of that. But I used to wonder, what would she think of me? And I know I can open a history book and I can imagine what life was like to her. Um, but wow. what would she think? So I, I love that. Yeah. I love that nugget of inspiration. Now, mm -hmm. in your own work in, as a psychotherapist, you work sure. a lot on racial identity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it sounds like we're there mm -hmm. in your book. Absolutely. Okay. So, so what does it mean to have this whole history of of Africanness behind you, um, and and to have this role in the world where you are where you are chattel. You're you're there for servitude. You're there for um, the economy, but you'll never benefit from it. And that's kind of our legacy. Um, and in Embers on the Wind, I ha I feature African Americans who see something bigger and something different and recognize their own humanity and are willing to face death to get there. Um, at this, uh, and and I wanted to contrast that with the meaning of class. So the the most of the well, I won't say most, but um, 
some of the main characters are affluent, educated Black women in 2018 and 2019 who have business degrees, medical degrees, um, and are financially secure. And yet that legacy is still part of them. Um, there's still a concern, you know, for example, Galen is, um, you know, an upper class young mom with postpartum de uh, depression and her child, Olivia, is very light skinned because her husband is white and she knows that she's going to be criticized if the baby doesn't look healthy or doesn't look right, if she's not neat. Galen's hair is always perfect. Her clothes are always perfect. She has the highest end, um, you know, baby equipment and things like that. And yet there is a visual separation between her and her child that someone could decide, oh, that baby's too light. That baby's not yours. You know, Kay is another mother in a similar situation who is kind of envious of the, the white new moms who can kind of wear messy clothes, have their hair in a sloppy new mom ponytail and kind of almost like a badge of, of like a badge, a status badge that like, oh, look what a mess I am today. And my baby's got spit up all over her clothes. Oh, well, whereas Kay has to make sure her baby is neat. Her hair is neat. Um, she has to think about what she's presenting of herself when she goes out in public. And there's a scene in the book where she is actually trying to make friends with Galen and she trips, she's trying to chase her and Galen's out running and she sees this other black mom in a similar position. And she wants to connect with her for reasons that are in the book that I'm not going to give away because they're spoilers, mm -hmm. but Kay trips and falls in the street and she's wearing a, a beautiful designer coat. But when she falls in the street, she gets it smudged. And along comes the realtor, a white woman, the realtor who sold her her million dollar brownstone. Well, more than we're now in 2019. So it's way more than a million dollars brownstone in, Brooklyn, in, in Park Slope. So the, the woman who sold her her home walks past with another couple and sees Kay in the street, a black woman with a smudged coat sitting in the street, says to the couple she's trying to you know, entice, oh, we hardly ever see that kind of thing in this neighborhood. And she can't see Kay. She can't see the individual who she's made a lot of money in a, in a real estate deal. All she sees is a black, sad woman alone sitting in the street. And all the, you know, the 200 years of, you know, whatever, um, was all the gains we've made since slavery, all gone, just a, a smudge. And, and so, so yeah. That, you know, I think that as a white woman, mm -hmm. that's something obviously I can't, I can't I can hear it and I can yeah. feel it but I can't appreciate it obviously because that's not my cultural mm -hmm. background when I hear you talk I think about um, parent tapes too so it's mm -hmm. not just the cultural tape right it's yeah. whatever our own individual um, culture or parenting has mm -hmm. taught us to be you know um, so mm -hmm. there's that combined I, I'm wondering um, about the different backgrounds of some of your sure. black characters mm -hmm. as well. Do they bring um, not only their cultural experience, but also a family experience that has set them up differently? Um, so they, so they do, you know, I, you don't get any of uh, Galen's family because that's just not in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And um, Kay is sort of this legacy where she doesn't know that she's been adopted um by a, a a very poor young teenager who, who not 
she, that's her birth mother. She didn't mm -hmm. adopt her, but um, the, you know, sort of, she has a line where she, she's also uh, been raised by a middle-class family, you know, and, and I always think I grew up in Manhattan. So I always think of kind of like, you know, hardworking um, dad, is, you know, works in a school, mom is a social worker, they live in Michelama housing. Um, and I don't know if that means that it's, it's not subsidized, but it's also sort of subsidized. It's, it's complicated, but it's very middle-class. And she has a line where she's able to arrange her work schedule. She's an entrepreneur with a hair care business, um, angle, and she can arrange her schedule around her children's schedules. So there's the line where she says, you know, to be taken for granted by one's kids is an, a privilege that her middle-class parents couldn't rely on. You know, she knows that, that she has enough money so that her kids can kind of snap and she'll say, they'll, and she'll say, you know, she, she'll be there. Um, so there is, there is sort of that, but I was going to say, you're talking about different backgrounds before I forget. Um, I do I do have this experience of having been a biracial mom and to have, you know, my mother was white and Jewish and she parented me, you know, in this way that somebody could harm my child and I have to protect them. Now, my mom came from a background where she was Jewish in Chicago in the 1930s, just when World War II was breaking out. She lived in a German neighborhood where her teachers protected her by pretending her last name, which is Rosen, um, formerly Rosenberg, that, that it was German. So they tried to protect her. My grandfather tried to pass for Italian so that he wouldn't be, even though he was very obviously Jewish with his last name. But so she had that experience growing in. So being parented by a Jewish mother for whom being Jewish was not safe, that's kind of where I come from. And than to be, and also to have a black father who grew up at a time where, and, and it's still the case, being black was not safe. Absolutely. So there was kind of this, this back and forth. My mother sometimes saved herself from anti-Semitism by hiding behind my father's last name, Williamson. So they both, and, and my mother looked for apartments without my father. You know, she would go, if they had to look for an apartment and meet a realtor, my mother would go, a nice little white Jewish lady, and she'd sign the lease and then my father would show up and they, there was nothing they could do about that. So there's a lot of racial dancing back and forth in my background. Um, but I really, this book was about my relationship with this ghost and the fact that, that I could wonder about this ghost and say, what does she think of me? Well, I've got these privileges. I have this white husband that I'm ordering around when I'm pregnant and, and, you know, get me a glass of water, get me this. What does she think of that? And does she think, oh, I've really arrived. I have all the freedoms she sought, but then do I? And why does my child have to look perfect when we go out to the playground? And why do I have to look, why do I have to work hard not to look like I'm the babysitter when I'm with my, you know, lighter skinned child? And where are all the other black people in the house? So, so there are kind of, it, it wasn't a clear cut. Oh, wow. This ghost will be so happy to see how 
I've arrived and how it's all better now, you know? That's one of the things I love about your novel. It's very Mm -hmm. complex. You know, you've got the myriad of stories, you've got the Mm -hmm. dual timeline, and you really are pushing that envelope about what does it mean to be free? Mm -hmm. And um, have you answered that question for yourself? I don't know, but when you ask that question, I always think of Nina Simone and her response to that question was no fear. If you are free, you are not afraid. You are unafraid. And I don't know if I answered that at all in the book, but I do know that there exists an external judge that's the white gaze. And so when the white mothers go out with their messy ponytails and their messy babies and they're spit up and they're like, oh, I'm such a mess today, but it's really a badge of aren't I a good mom? The black mom has to be accompanied, well, at least in Park Slope, at least in wherever it was, the black mom has to be accompanied by this external judging voice, which is the white gaze. You know, be careful you don't look like a homeless person or your realtor will not see you. Be careful your baby doesn't look unkempt or he could be taken away from you. And so we have, you know, in the book is full of, well, stories about well there's one mother who had who was um one of the formerly enslaved characters little annie in 18 who runs away from runs away and lands at whitaker house in 1850 six of her children have been sold she's seen all six of her boys taken and sold from her yeah, it's just on it's so yeah it really really is how, and how and yet it isn't unfathomable it isn't unfathomable to upper to the these upper class black mothers who happen to have biracial children who could be taken away from them if they're not careful it's not that far away so to that's that's what i was that was what i was demonstrating that that voice and they may not be able to identify the voice as this old old judgment an, an assumption that a black mother doesn't have full possession of her own children. That's actually, does that really make sense? Yeah. No, I mean, it's very helpful to hear. Yeah. The amount of research you had to do to get this right must have been overwhelming. I mean, obviously you had the house and the house's history. Mm-hmm. Talk just briefly about your research. Mm-hmm. Path. So there's a lot. So the, you know, the, Research that I did, you know, I read books about 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 enslaved. The reason I use the word formerly enslaved African Americans instead of slaves, you know, that that's also something that I really thought about and read about and understood why we say enslaver instead of slave master. And so I did a lot of you know book research, but I and and internet research and interviews and things like that. But um, more of the book is set in the 80s and the 90s and the aughts and or, or now the teens or whatever we're talking about. But and so I knew, you know, I had a lot of my own experiences were in there. The, the situation where she's told that baby can't be yours and she's breastfeeding, that happened to me. Um, the there there's the the moments in the coffee shop, similar things have happened to me and friends and people I know. I'm also a therapist and I don't use my clients, but I know that that I hear hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories and they seep in. And, um, you know, so 
that and all of that living is research. So, you know, t different kinds of mothers, you know, I've worked for years. I know that um, one of the mothers in the book is, is Catherine, and she's a white woman from Connecticut in a very posh part of Connecticut where she's got two uh, blonde haired, blue eyed boys, a blonde haired, blue eyed husband. She's got blonde hair and blue eyes. And she, her beloved, beloved favorite son is Timothy, who is black and adopted. And, you know, for, for Catherine, the, the son just rises and sets with Timothy. And he's also autistic. So she has to, I always call it parenting with your elbows, which is what my, my mother did. Kind of these white women who are like, you, I dare you to be ableist or racist or whatever around my kid and it also takes white privilege to be able to do that absolutely because Catherine can like get up and fight for tip for timothy without fear and 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 that's um and that's different i don't know how i got no lisa there but i'm just talking about it could, but I, I oh i think i've worked with i used to work for an adoption agency and that's how all the adoption themes that got in there I've worked as the adoption case worker for families adopting children mm. for three years, and that was its own education. So, so ad the adoption experience, that and the fact that everybody thought I was adopted when I went places with my mother. Okay. Anyway, but it's so but Lisa, that, that's research. Yeah. I'm so excited Sorry. that you spent time with us. Your novel mm -hmm. is fabulous. Embers on the Wind. Our time is amazingly up already <laughs> i want to i want to thank you not only for your important mm -hmm. novel and a really good read but also i think the opportunity to very comfortably talk about white privilege and racial identity mm -hmm. and i it, that's a very refreshing mm -hmm. opportunity to be able to have a meaningful yeah. cultural exchange with you so thank you for that oh, as well. thank you and it was such a pleasure to be here and to talk to you Thanks so much for being on The Storytellers. This Thank has been you. a copyrighted episode of The Storytellers by Grace Salmon and Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.